0: Hello, I'm Phil Farrow, Chief Meteorologist at WSBN-TV in South Florida, and this is Weather or Not. In this week's edition, I look at a huge dead spot in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. Marine life is notoriously absent, and the area is getting larger. But now, there's research underway that may help, and it's in the form of a wood chip.
1: These wood chip bioreactors enhance a natural process, a natural part of the nitrogen cycle, the conversion of nitrate to harmless, stable nitrogen gas.
0: Plus, closer to shore along Florida's west coast, a type of algae is killing marine life. Tons and tons of fish have died, and the culprit can also impact humans. And this incident is impacting a large area.
2: This is the worst bloom Tampa Bay has seen since the 1970s.
0: That's all next on Weather or Not. A record storm season during a pandemic made 2020 unforgettable. This year, count on the Seven Weather team once again to do what we do best. Keep you safe. The latest alerts, the best coverage. That's why we're the Storm Station. Seven News. A huge algae bloom is impacting the west coast of Florida. It's killing fish, hurting the fishing industry, as well as tourism. This algae bloom is better known as the red tide, even though it may not look red at all. I wanted to find out what causes this tide, and so I reached out to NOAA scientist, Dr. Tracy Fanara to help me out. Full disclosure, this was the second interview I did with Dr. Fanara. The first, I absentmindedly forgot to hit the record button. She was nice enough to grant me another opportunity. First of all, once again, thank you very much. I'm, I'm, I am assured that it is recording. I see the record button on.
2: I see it. Yes, I see it too. <laughs> yes, thank
0: you. All right. Well, let's get to it right away. That way you know, we won't take up too much of your time. And I, I really want to hit the subject of red tide. Uh, what is a red tide?
2: So Florida red tide is a common name for an elevated concentration of the species Karenia brevis. So we get over 70% of our oxygen over millennia from phytoplankton. But few of those species are actually toxic, meaning that they release a toxin into the water that can harm aquatic life. Karenia brevis is one of those species. But what makes it so unique is that the toxin not only releases into the water, but can actually aerosolize, meaning that the toxin can attach on to sea salt particles in the air, move on shore with winds and cause coughing or sneezing in people that are healthy. But for those with COPD or asthma, this can be really serious.
0: And what does it do to the marine life?
2: So it, it, it depends on the species. So for fish and shark, basically it, it blocks out their sodium channels the same thing that it does to the to us but it basically suffocates them with manatees and dolphin it's a little bit different so with manatees they eat seagrass and the toxin accumulates on something called epiphytes that attach to seagrass and that's how they they ingest the toxin and then with dolphin they eat fish that have been uh, that have high concentrations of the toxin Uh, and they're impacted that way, so through ingestion.
0: So why has this year's event uh, been so, so large?
2: That's a great question. You know, we have had big blooms every decade or so, but the last one was in 2018 and 19 and, well, from 17 to 19, technically. And, and a lot of people are wondering, you know, how, how is this happening so, so quickly? But just like it happened in 2017, 18, 19, it's a perfect storm of events. So there are so many different factors that play a role in the initiation and exacerbation of Florida red tide blooms. This bloom started in November 2020, uh, about two weeks after Hurricane Ada. And I actually called the bloom at that time, this has been the latest a bloom has started. This was late late November, and it seems that these blooms are starting later and later. And the bloom kind of stayed down south near Captiva, Fort Myers area on and off ever since. And then, in april there was a discharge of an abandoned phosphate mine waste with high nutrients phosphorus and nitrogen and our coastal waters are nitrogen limited meaning that there's plenty of phosphorus around so for production it's really the nitrogen that 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 we pay attention to and we knew that this wastewater had a lot of nitrogen i think there was 200 million gallons released into tampa bay well soon after that we had northern currents bringing the existing bloom that was in lee county north so so basically when this bloom was moved north it can then be fed by that wastewater so we started to see elevated concentrations in tampa bay in the beginning of june then hurricane elsa came through brought the water north and to the east and with all of this water movement, it also brought a lot of Karenia brevis, Florida red tide, all the patches that, that had been patchy throughout the coast. They're all being pushed into Tampa Bay along with dead fish. And then with the high nutrients, of course, they're able to then reproduce. And at this point, the Karenia brevis were feeding on the dead fish. So it was basically a bloom that was feeding itself. And it, and it, it it's... Pretty, uh, this is the worst bloom Tampa Bay has seen since the 1970s.
0: Now does climate change play a part in any of this?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question too because I can't say definitively what will happen with a changing climate. We know that some species of phytoplankton will get more intense, more frequent with climate change. But with Karenia brevis, there's so much that we don't know. We don't even understand the full phytoplankton community let alone all the physics and chemistry uh, that are also involved with the initiation of blooms. But we do know that Karenia brevis, they're slow growers, so they may be outcompeted competed with climate change by other species. However, with changing currents and changing chemistry and the increase in rainfall in Florida that's predicted, bringing nutrients to our coastlines, uh, and we know that this native species blooms every year, so the more nutrients that that is being fed to these species that that go to our coastline these blooms start offshore and they move on shore with currents but when they get close enough to to the coastline that's when they can actually use that nutrients from surface water runoff so that increased rainfall can play a role there now with increasing intensity of hurricanes for example yeah. these these species are unarmed so they can be easily lysed so perhaps with turbulence in some of these hurricane events, we can see blooms end with a hurricane event. But, you know, as we've seen in the past, sometimes blooms stay the same or actually exacerbate following following an event. So I, I hate to say that we we don't know what's going to happen with climate change in Florida Red Tide. But um, the one thing that we are seeing is a shift in bloom season. So we used to see these blooms start in late summer, early fall, and it seems as though we're seeing them start later and later. We don't have the statistics and the consistent data stream to back that up. But in a laboratory, we know that Karenia brevis likes it between 65 and 86 degrees. Now, the reason why Karenia brevis or Florida red tide is so difficult to understand is because it's a microscopic phytoplankton in a huge body of water and it acts differently in a laboratory than it does in the natural environment meaning that just because it likes it, it does best between 65 and 86 degrees in a laboratory doesn't mean it can't survive outside of that in the natural environment however our minimum temperature in the gulf of mexico is increasing faster than our maximum temperature so we are no longer reaching that 65 degree mark so could that play a role in extending blooms and and that's that's the kind of the worry And the big worry with this current bloom is that you know, we have this bloom and it lasts throughout the summer and then we get a second bloom that meets up with it, which is what happened in 2018 when we saw the Florida water crisis. Right.
0: You know what's interesting is that uh, I was speaking with a climatologist the other day and and, uh, we were talking about uh, the warming temperatures and he was suggesting that not so much the highs, but our overnight lows are getting warmer and also our, our hurricane activity is picking up earlier in the season and then later in the season so uh, it's interesting to see the parallels there with the phytoplankton that in, indeed you know the temperatures are getting warmer the lowest and now the blooms are happening later so you can tell that in mother nature everything is somehow connected to each other um Is there anything, anything that can be done scientifically to mitigate these huge algae blooms?
2: You know, up to this point, the best thing that we can do is alert the public of where these blooms are Mm -hmm. to to protect them from the effects of Florida red tide. Because a lot of times these blooms are really patchy. And so you might be experiencing effects at one beach and not at a beach a mile south. So I redeveloped a website called the beach conditions reporting system and developed a couple apps that have trained beach sentinels reporting respiratory irritation, dead fish, among other parameters that anyone would want to know going to a beach and it's visitbeaches.org or the beach conditions reporting system. If you want to download that, we have our trained beach ambassadors that report twice daily, but also we have the general public that's able to, to report what they're seeing as well. But, but right now, Mont Marine Laboratory, which is where I used to work before I, I came to NOAA, um, and that's where I developed those apps. So the, they are Mote Marine Laboratory apps. Uh, but but Mount Marine Laboratory has been funded, not very much, but, but enough to run some experiments on how to mitigate these blooms when they're, when they're out in the water uh, to prevent, to basically control them before they get closer to shore. And so they're using a number of different techniques. There is a there is a chemical that is released from macroalgae that actually acts as a microalgae algicide for red tide. So they're trying to harness that, and they're using clay for flocculation and sedimentation. Uh, right before I left, I had a a few proposals funded. One of them through a company called Carbonext, and it is to optimize activated carbon uh, to remove. Red tag cells from from the water column. Uh, so there's there's things being done there, but really, you know, what we need to do is is retrofit our poor land management that we've had up to this point, and treat nutrients at the source. Uh, we need better better regulations on farming, mining, and especially land development, uh, because we are m- manipulating the water cycle so much. We're taking this water that used to percolate into the ground, being treated chemically, biologically, and physically. And we're putting it on the surface. And in that, it's picking up everything that we're putting on our land, fertilizers, herbicides, insecticides, and and bringing it all to our natural water bodies at really fast speeds, high volumes, causing flooding and erosion and ecosystem shock, along with algae blooms. And, you know, right now we're seeing the largest mass manatee mortality event. Uh, and that's because of, you know, changing ecosystems over a decade long process.
0: Unbelievable. You are so correct. What what were the names again of those apps? So our, our listeners can tap into them.
2: Yeah. So visitbeaches.org or the beach conditions reporting system. And then uh, the Florida fish and wildlife already uh, also has a website called the Florida red tide, Sample map and it's the past eight days of sample concentrations, which is which is tough because these blooms move with winds and currents. So eight days ago, the a bloom might be or a patch of bloom might be somewhere where, you know, it wasn't. So that's why the beach conditions reporting system is that near real time information that that the public needs to make decisions when going to a beach.
0: Well, Dr. Fernera, thank you much for all the work you do. We rely on it greatly. And then once again, thank you for your patience with me. And thank you for joining us once again.
2: Oh, no problem. Thank you so much for having me. All
0: right. (laughs) Bye-bye. We will pick up on the dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico when weather or not returns. The
2: best app
0: from the best weather team is right here. Seven's Hurricane Tracker app.
2: Get the latest forecast models,
0: my Seven weather blog, and of course, Seven's cone on your phone.
2: It's yours, free from the storm station. Seven News.
0: There's an area in the Gulf of Mexico near the mouth of the Mississippi River known as a dead zone. It has very little oxygen, and thus marine life either dies or tries to avoid it altogether. It hovers between the Louisiana and Texas coastlines and can be as large as six to 7,000 square miles. The zone is caused by discharge from the Mississippi River. But now there's hope. A new technique could help mitigate that. Joining me now is Dr. Laura Christensen, an expert in finding new techniques to grow crops in a way that preserves clean water nutrient-rich soil, and healthy ecosystems. She is an international expert in wood chip bioreactors, helping growers reduce the amount of nitrogen in drainage water from agricultural fields.
1: Hi, yep, thanks, Bill. Thanks for the opportunity to be on today. Um, I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Crop Sciences at the University of Illinois. And from my research, we work hand in hand with our farmers here in Illinois and around the region and around the world uh, to reduce the amount of nitrogen pollution that we send from farms to downstream waters. Um, as you know, this nitrogen pollution that we are sending downstream, um, unfortunately, it causes uh, the hypoxic zone in the Gulf of Mexico that occurs every summer. And so we want to find ways um, that are realistic options and realistic solutions for farmers to stop nitrogen pollution really before it even starts or before it even goes anywhere downstream. And so that's what we're working on.
0: So how big is this dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico? And does it impact the entire ecosystem? Is it plant life? Is it marine life? Is it mammals as well?
1: Yeah, um, the the size of the hypoxic zone does vary every year, and I'm not an aquatic ecologist or anything like that working directly with the hypoxic zone. Um, I work more with farmers here in Illinois to stop the problem before it even starts. Um, but I know the hypoxic zone does vary year to year. It depends on how much nitrogen and phosphorus we send downstream. It depends on if it's a wet year or a dry year um, up here in the upper Mississippi River Basin, those upper Midwestern states. Um, It also depends on things like if there's hurricanes um, happening in the Gulf of Mexico, or if it's a very active hurricane season. All of those things impact um, the amount of algae that grow, how that algae gets mixed up and distributed, um, and how the dissolved oxygen in the Gulf of Mexico gets distributed. Um, and so, yeah, the size of the hypoxic zone varies year to year, but we're always looking to decrease the size of the hypoxic zone. That's the point.
0: So when all this is going down, obviously down the Mississippi River and into the Gulf of Mexico, so how widespread is the, the, the use of, of, obviously it must come from fertilizers uh, that's feeding all this. How, how, how widespread is is the use of all these fertilizers?
1: Well, fertilizer is an integral part for how we grow many crops in the Midwest. Um, across the Midwest, two of the biggest crops that we grow are corn as well as soybeans. Um, Soybeans are a legume. And so they do a a wonderful, magical, (laughs) scientific process of fixing their own nitrogen. And so uh, we typically do not apply fertilizer to soybeans. However, corn, which is our other main crop, is a very nitrogen intensive -intensive crop. And so we do apply nitrogen fertilizer to corn every year. Um, I think an Another important nuance is that for agriculture across the Midwest, Um, Our soils are very, very rich. Um, You know, thousands of years of prairie has produced a soil that's really, really perfect for growing crops in the Midwest. Um, And so that soil naturally contains a lot of nitrogen. That's part of what makes it so rich. Um, Another nuance of our soils or our fields is that they tend to not drain very well naturally. And so we have to have a practice called the practice of tile drainage, where we put little pipes in our fields to help um, remove water from the field when it's too wet. And so this this concept or this idea that our soils naturally contain a lot of nitrogen, um, our soils require this practice of additional drainage, tile drainage that we provide, and the fact that we grow um, some nitrogen intensive crops, all of those things together play into the fact that we send nitrogen downstream. So I would say fertilizer in itself is not the sole cause. Um, We know we need nitrogen fertilizer to grow corn profitably. um, And so it's really, it's more complicated than just you know, reducing the amount of nitrogen fertilizer itself. It's it's a complex system that we have up here, um, which makes us so well-known for our high-quality agricultural production. But that's why we work with farmers on a number of practices, like one, managing nitrogen fertilizer better, um, but also things like edge of field practices, like constructed wetlands, or in my case, wood chip bioreactors that clean nitrogen pollution out of our tile drainage water before that nitrogen. Goes downstream.
0: So that is my, my, my biggest question now is, is what, what I find very interesting is that you're finding out now, or, or at least you are using these wood chips to kind of help clean up this process. How, how well is that going? Where do you stand right now on the, on this idea of using those wood chips to improve the situation?
1: We know that our little wood chip bioreactors, we call them, they work very, very well for cleaning nitrogen out of tile drainage water, as well as other agricultural runoff and effluents. Um, these wood chip bioreactors enhance a natural process, a natural part of the nitrogen cycle, the conversion of nitrate to harmless, stable nitrogen gas, dinitrogen gas. That's the process of denitrification, um, which is a natural part of the nitrogen nitrogen cycle. In our wood chip bioreactors, we are providing the denitrifying bacteria that do this nitrogen process. We're providing them food, that's the carbon in the wood chips and providing them the right conditions to do their job. And so as nitrogen flows by the little bacteria on these wood chips, they convert that nitrate nitrogen to harmless dinitrogen gas. And so these are relatively simple, relatively kind of benign and passive treatment systems, a trench full of wood chips um, that we're having a lot of success with. We know bioreact wood chip bioreactors clean anywhere from 20 to about 40 percent of the nitrogen that would otherwise go downstream. They clean that out of the water. Um, And so really where we are right now is trying to get farmers to take up this practice um, of cleaning nitrogen out of the water.
0: That was going to be my next question. How how receptive has the uh, farming community uh, been to this?
1: I would say they're very receptive. I do believe that our farmers in Illinois and across the Midwest are some of our biggest environmental um, advocates. They, I, I know in their hearts, believe that that they do want to be good upstream neighbors. Um, one of the biggest challenges for edge of field practices, like, um, say, a wetland or a wood chip bioreactor, like I described. Um, There's no yield, there's no crop yield benefit to an edge of field conservation practice like that. And so, um, you know, farmers are are doing a business just like anyone else. And so they're always watching their bottom line. If there's no increase to their crop yields, it's sometimes hard to promote a practice if it doesn't improve yield, especially if it's a practice that a farmer would have to pay out of pocket for, um, which we often do. We do have some great federal and state programs to help uh, foot the bill for, um, for example, a wood chip bioreactor, but um, it's still a little bit slow on the uptake. I would say we have 40 to 50 bioreactors in Illinois right now.
0: What are you, what, how high do you want to go? Um... Are we shooting for 50%, 60%? Where would you like this process to go to?
1: Yeah, that's an excellent point. The ultimate goal um, for our state of Illinois, as well as for the state of Iowa and other states that send water to the Mississippi River, our ultimate goal is to reduce the amount of nitrogen and the amount of phosphorus that we send to the Mississippi River by 45%. Mm. So that 45% is kind of the magic number. Um, Bioreactors are a very effective, very efficient practice to remove um, nitrogen pollution from uh, for example, tile drainage, but, you know, if we're only getting maybe 20 to 30% of the nitrogen with a bioreactor, we also need to be thinking about in-field practices, like um, like I mentioned, managing nitrogen fertilizer better. Um, there's other practices like a winter cover crop, which is gaining a lot of traction um, across Illinois and across other states. And so, you know, there is no one size fits all for conservation and reducing um nitrogen and phosphorus pollution from farms, it really takes all of our conservation practices that we know work.
0: You know, um, the, during the pandemic shutdown, we saw Mother Nature breathe a little better, smog disappeared in places, and, and even our beaches here in South Florida were crystal clear. Mm-hmm. Let's say that everyone adopts this and maybe other measures to clean things up. How quickly do you foresee a reduction in like algae blooms down the road in the, in the Gulf of Mexico?
1: I think that's a tricky question um, because we're talking about the Mississippi river basin, which is one of the largest river basins in the world. There is a lag time from when we adopt a certain conservation practice on a farm, uh, say, for example, here in the middle of Illinois, when will that water quality improvement be trans um, when that water quality improvement will be transmitted downstream? Um, You know, I I like to think that we do things here on our farms and we see immediate, uh, we do good practices here on our farms and we see immediate improvement downstream. But again, you know, we're a thousand miles away from the Gulf of Mexico. Um, I do think though that sometimes the impact can be relatively fast, for example, within a year, because we know that in years that we have drought in the Midwest, we hate to see that, but in years where we have drought, the hypoxic zone is very small. And that's simply because we're not sending much water downstream. Right. And so um, in some years, the year the, the impact could be felt relatively soon.
0: You know, one, one final question, and for us here, we deal with a lot of hurricanes. Um, how big of a problem is this that hurricanes can actually in, impact algae blooms, for example?
1: Well, that is a little bit beyond my, uh, my specific area of study, but I do, know that in years where there's a lot of hurricane activity or i have heard there in years where there's a lot of hurricane activity in the gulf of mexico that causes some that causes some of the stratification that forms within the ocean or within the gulf um it really mixes up those ocean layers and that uh, reduces the impact of having reduced oxygen which is measured at the bottom Um, and so it's hard for me to say exactly what what level of impact that would have, but I do know that that can happen. In, in the hypoxic zone is less severe in years where there's a lot of hurricane activity.
0: Well, uh, thank you very much, uh, uh, doctor, for uh, joining us here today. I, I hope nothing but the best for what you're trying to do uh, up across the upper Midwest. Um, uh, we depend on on the farmers and we depend on on you to hopefully keep everything clean for the rest of us down in the the Gulf of Mexico, where we enjoy our beaches and and we love our marine life. So thank you so much for taking the time to to join us in our podcast.
1: Thank you. It's really a pleasure. I appreciate it.
0: There's a footnote to this podcast, especially the Red Tide story. When SpaceX launches its first civilian mission to the moon in 2023, Dr. Tracy Fanara may be on board. A very well-to-do individual bought a seat and is giving it away. Dr. Fanara is one of the eight finalists to possibly be on that flight. We wish her well. Next week on whether or not, the West Coast of the U.S. is baking. What has led to this climate change?
1: In the future, we can expect that that snow season, that winter season will shorten. And so that means that the West will get less of their water supply from the snow melt when we move into the spring season.
0: Meteorologist Jessica Fernandez with the story. And we'll take a look at the COVID Delta variant. Why is it so strong? So initially we started out the pandemic with the Alpha variant. And here we are months later with the Delta variant. So this is going to continue, essentially, as the virus enters new um, uh, patients throughout the world. Meteorologist Erica Delgado dons her medical hat. That's in our next issue, which drops August 17th. If you have a question that we can answer on an upcoming podcast or have a comment, please send me an email at pferro.com at WSVN.com. Also, it would be really nice if you would subscribe to our podcast. You can always follow us on Twitter and Facebook at 7Weather, and of course, live on air at WSVN7. Thanks for joining us. Please tell your friends about us. We need all the listeners we can get. Until next time, I'm Chief Meteorologist Phil Farrell.